powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Please sit. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. That's right, folks. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before I want to jump into the episode, though, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guests, Fritz Coleman and Elise Palenka. Those were two incredibly fantastic guests, and the episode was incredibly well received. If you hadn't had a chance to check out their podcast, the Media Path Podcast, be sure you do. Also, if you haven't listened to their interview with me yet, I encourage you to do so after the conclusion of this episode. All right, so welcome to episode 132. We have an incredible interview lined up for you today, and I do mean incredible. We have on the show anti-nuclear arms activist and Nobel laureate, Dr. Helen Caldicott. We are going to be talking about growing up in World War II Australia, her decades of activism, the Nobel Peace Prize, the Cold War, and the current war in the Ukraine, and so much more. This is an incredibly in-depth interview and truly one of the greatest honors of my life to be speaking to such a legendary figure. So here we go. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show, calling in from just outside of Sydney, Australia, Nobel laureate, feminist icon, and anti-nuclear arms activist, Dr. Helen Caldicott. Dr. Caldicott, hello, welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. This is, again, truly a great honor for me to speak with you. How was the weather out by you today? Oh, um, well, it's it's lovely. The sun is shining, the sky is blue, and white clouds are scudding across the sky. So I start my interviews off the same way, and it's how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world so far? The COVID world? Um, look, I'm 84, and I'm very, very careful. I'm a physician. I'm very aware of how it spreads. I wear a mask all the time, and thus far I haven't developed COVID. I live in a retirement village where 12 people got it. Some are really quite sick, but the antivirals at the moment are quite effective, and no one's died here yet. It's increasing in, in numbers at the moment in Australia. So every journey has a beginning, and if I'm understanding, you were born in Australia, 1938, a year before Australia entered the Second World War, do you have any memories of growing up during that turbulent time yes, in history? Yes, I do, I do. We had blackout blinds, so the Japs couldn't see where we were. We had searchlights searching the sky. A small a Japanese submarine got into Sydney Harbour. The Japanese bombed Darwin Flat, which is the northernmost city of Australia, My mother was terrified that we'd be speaking Japanese soon. We evacuated to a small village in Victoria, but it happened to be right on the railway line and passing 
trains were carrying tanks, etc. So it would have been bombed. It was very scary. And and my father dug an air raid shelter in the back garden, which unfortunately filled with water. So it was a scary time as a child. Mm. And I remember when the war ended, the air raid siren sounded and the school teacher said, what's that? And I, being a Miss Smarty Pants, said that means the war is over. And I walked home feeling fantastic, smelling all the flowers on the way home, not knowing until I was an adult how the war was ended. So when you were young, at what point did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? That's a good question, Derek. My two heroes when I was young were Robin Hood and the Good Samaritan. And my nickname was Henny Penny. Well, I'm Helen, but everyone at home called me Henny Penny. And it's Henny Penny that thought the sky was falling down and set off to tell the king the sky was falling down. So that's funny. So I wanted to be a teacher till I was about 11. And then I got into bed with my mother one morning on Sunday and said, I'm going to be a doctor. And she said, why? And I said, I can help more people if I'm a doctor. And I never wavered. And I just loved medicine. I love medicine. Do you have any favorite memories from your time at University of Adelaide Medical School? (laughs) Yeah, look, it was great. I, I was with a class of, I was very flirtatious and there were lots of blokes around that I could flirt with. I had a lot of boyfriends. Um, I just loved learning anatomy. You know, we were dissect a a dead body and we were eating our lunch beside the dissection, etc. I learned embryology. I learned histology. I learned pathology. uh, And then we went into the wards, which was just fabulous. I had the most fantastic teachers. And also I made friends with with the medical students. It was like a family. I mean, I know those people. They're dying now, which is sad, but I know those people as well as I know my brother and sister. What led you to establish the Cystic Fibrosis Clinic? And I read it has one of the best survival rates in Australia, if I'm correctly. Yeah. Um, what happened was I was pregnant with my third baby. I had three babies in three years. I just love having babies. And my husband uh, was appointed to work at the Children's Hospital in Boston in the radiology department with a wonderful man called Dr. Ed Newhouser. We couldn't afford to have the baby in in America, so I stayed at home for five months with my two little children and my mother, who had severe rheumatoid arthritis and severe pulmonary fibrosis, and she was pretty sick. But I had my baby. I was so tired I didn't know how I could possibly pack and get everyone over to America. But I did, and we arrived. The baby was three months old. And I was at home with the children, and I got a bit bored, and I said to my husband, can you get me a job at Harvard? And he met this doctor called Dr. Harry Schwachman, who was a pioneer in the treatment of cystic fibrosis. So he got me a part-time job in the CF clinic, and I learned how to treat it. When we came back to Adelaide, um, I found out that the children at the Adelaide Children's Hospital were not being treated for their CF because it was considered to be a fatal disease, and the sooner they died, the better. And I said, look, I can treat this disease. And they said, well, who do you think you are? You're not even a paediatrician. So I said to Bill, look, 
I've looked after the children for all these years when you did your radiological training. Now you can look after them. And I just read Jermaine Greer, the female eunuch, so I was pretty sure of what I wanted to do. And so we did swap roles and I worked 80 hours a week as a paediatric intern at the hospital. Um, and then I worked as a registrar and then I sat for the exam for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians and I passed that. And then I had six months to set up the CF clinic before we left again for Boston for sabbatical. And I had to bring in physiotherapists, people who can run mist tents, nutritionists, uh, the pharmacists, the whole thing. I think there were about 50 or 60 patients and I got them all organised before I left and I trained a doctor to look after them in my absence. And it was the first CF clinic in Australia and it does have the best now longevity results in Australia. So that was a good thing. That's awesome. Now, I've ordered a copy of On the Beach from a local bookshop, and I'm hoping to give it a read. It wasn't able to get it here in time for this interview. But I understand that this was the novel that inspired you to get into anti-nuclear activism. Is that correct? It'll scare the bejesus out of you because it's so topical. It was written when I was about 18 by Neville Shute, an Australian. Uh, and it was about a nuclear war that occurred by accident in the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> it could happen tonight, let's be frank, with the two huge nuclear superpowers facing each other in a war. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're lucky to be here at the moment. We're right on the edge of nuclear catastrophe. Anyway, the war occurred by accident and the radio and everyone in the Northern Hemisphere died and the radiation gradually passed through the equator and down to Melbourne where I lived. Melbourne, a, sub, a southern city in Australia. And people in the Melbourne club, the men, had their last gin and tonic. Everyone was scared to death. And the government dispensed cyanide capsules so that people could kill their babies immediately and not have them dying of acute radiation illness, having had a huge dose of radiation, vomiting and bleeding to death. And at the end of that book, I lived in Melbourne. The beautiful streets of Melbourne were empty. There were no people, and that was the end of the human race. And I was only about 18. So the innocence and beauty of life at the age of 18 dissipated, and I was always, always aware from then on that we could all be killed in a nuclear war, and it's just got worse. No argument there. Now, you were able to get France to stop atmospheric nuclear weapon testing in the Pacific and banning the mining of uranium all within three years. What do you remember about those early days of successful activism? Good question. First of all, the French were testing bombs in the Pacific and the Muraroa atolls. And I, someone leaked a memo from the Water Department in Adelaide to show that we were getting quite a high fallout in the of radiation in the Adelaide water. So I wrote a letter to the editor of the, of the advertiser, the local papers, saying just that, and that the isotopes would concentrate in cow's milk and human breast milk and children could die of leukemia and cancer. Well, he didn't publish the letter, so I rang him up and said, where's my letter? It's very condescending and said, well, madam, we get hundreds of letters a day. And I said, yes, but mine's important. So I talked him through it and he published it. That night, I was asked on television 
to national television to talk about the medical effects of radiation in water and concentrate bioconcentration in the food supply. Um, and every time the French blew up another bomb, there I was on television. Uh, and people were absolutely incensed. There were whole pages of letters for the editor. There were spontaneous marches in the city streets. People stopped buying French bread, French cheese, French wine. And 80% of the of the Australians were opposed, violently opposed. So I was then asked to go to Tahiti, where the French were, to talk to them about their tests. Well, we got to the airport in Sydney and the man who was to become the next Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, was there. His deputy, Jim Kens, was there and they put their heads together and it was decided by the French that we were not allowed to land in Tahiti. So I went up to these big politicians and I said, look, you're not to use this as a political exercise because an election was upcoming. I said, this is this is about the Australian people. So the next minute I find myself on a Qantas plane eating kangaroo tail soup, drinking champagne on my way to France. Um, and I was with Jim, Jim Cairns, who became the Deputy Prime Minister, a lovely man, and the head of the Australian Union of Students. We went to the Elysee Palace, Palace to meet the politicians, and the French politicians said, our bombs are perfectly safe. So Jim Ken said to them, well, why don't you blow them up in the Mediterranean then? And their faces turned bright, right, white, white, and said, mon dieu, there are too many people living around the Mediterranean. So for the first time in my life, I found I was sitting opposite wicked, wicked politicians who didn't give one goddamn if Australian children died of leukaemia or cancer. And that was a very pivotal moment in my life. Anyway, we came back to Australia and because of the huge momentum in Australia about the French tests, the new Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, took them to the International Court of Justice and they were forced to test on the ground. So out of sight is out of mind. So he had a partial victory and that stopped the fallout occurring. Then I found out that this new Prime Minister wanted my uranium and I knew nothing about nuclear power. So I went to the university library and I got out a book called Poison Power by Goffman and Tamplin, who both worked for the Atomic Energy Commission. And they were commissioned to write this book about the dangers of nuclear power and radioactive waste. And I just was devastated by reading it. It was the most dangerous book I'd ever read. I then went to try and seek off Whitlam in Parliament House, but he was not interested in talking to me. I didn't know what to do. And then I had a friend who was an engine driver. And at that time, almost all the Australian workers were unionised. We had many, many, many unions, maybe up to 100. He said, well, let's write a letter to all the unions and ask if you can come and talk to them about the dangers of mining uranium because uranium miners are ex, uh, exposed to gamma radiation like x-rays from the uranium in the mines and the radon and the radium and by inhaling radioactive particles to get lung cancer, radiation to their testicles and the like. And so I travelled around Australia talking to blokes before they left for work at 6am in the morning and the like drawing genes, sperm, etc., on dirty old blackboards. 
and I got around to speak to unions all over Australia. I en- eventually ended up speaking to the National Railways Union board in Sydney, and the next day they called a national strike so that no one could get to work because all the trains were stopped in Australia for 24 hours. Such was the momentum then that the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the leading body, passed a resolution that they would neither mine, transport nor export uranium. That resolution lasted for three years before we got a Prime Minister called Bob Hawke, who was negotiating at the time with the US Embassy in Canberra. He was a traitor. And he promised that he would get to the Americans that he would reverse that trade union resolution. And he passed a resolution then we'd have the three mine policy, only three mines. Well, that's like telling a patient, well, sorry, Mrs. Brown, you're just a little bit pregnant. Don't worry about it. And so that policy was reversed. So that's what happened with uh, uranium in Australia. Hmm. Now, you are my first, and I hope not my last, Nobel laureate. You won the Nobel as part of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Do me a favor, take us through finding out that you won to accepting the honor, because I'm fascinated. (laughs) Well, I started the Physicians for Social Responsibility in Boston in 1982, I think. It had been operating 20 years ago, but died. So we just used the the credentials that were in the office in the government in Boston to restart it. And uh, and I travelled all across America speaking in hospitals, doing grand rounds. Once a week in hospitals, we have what's called grand rounds where you attend a session and hear the latest about nephrology or cardiology or neurology, and I would talk to them about the medical effects of nuclear war. So over time, I recruited... Um, 23,000 physicians to belong to Physicians for Social Responsibility. And at the same time, I travelled all over the world, speaking in Canada, Japan, Germany, Ireland, Scotland, England, all over the world, starting similar medical campaigns all over the world. And this, this is a bit of a nasty story, actually, because there was a guy who originally founded PSR back in the early 60s called Bernard Laun. He's since died. He's a cardiologist. And he found out about what was going on at PSR. He had no role in it, nor in recruiting doctors all over the world. But he started a thing called International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. He had a lunch and asked me to attend, talked about it, then sent one of his delegates to tell me to the Harvard Club, take me to the lunch to the Harvard Club and say, well, I was no longer appropriate to be a member of this organisation. So what he did was he started the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, bringing in all of the doctors that I'd recruited all over the world. Then he started lobbying for the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, in fact, just before that, Linus Pauling, who is a double Nobel laureate, nominated me for the Nobel Prize. And he said, don't lobby. They don't like that. Well, apparently Bernard Lamb started lobbying them like crazy. And he then got the Nobel Prize hung around his neck for my work. 
um, it was given to the international physicians for the prevention of nuclear war, which I created, and Physicians for Social Responsibility was one of the main organisations. So, in fact, we were all Nobel laureates, but actually the person who did the work was me. Hmm. Um, he since died, but I wrote a letter to him towards the end of his life accusing him of stealing my work. And he did. And he marginalised me in the medical organisations around the world. So, you know, here again is a man taking the uh, place of a woman who did the work. And it was pretty painful for me. Yes, I am a Nobel laureate. We all are. But the way it happened was not good. I understand. I want to talk to you about your 1981 documentary, Eight Minutes to Midnight, a portrait of Dr. Helen Calder, but Oscar nominated as well. What do you remember about the making of the documentary and the reaction after its release? Well, that was made by my niece, Anna Bronowski, um, and she travelled around the world with me filming it, but it wasn't nominated for the Oscar. The film that was was called If You Love This Planet. I arrived in Plattsburgh, New York to give a lecture. I think I'd given one earlier in the day and I was absolutely exhausted. You know, I used to travel to three cities a day addressing audiences of a thousand or more. And I turn up in Plattsburgh and in this auditorium were a whole, whole lot of Klieg lights and the Canadian Film Corporation decided to make a film about me giving a lecture. Well, I gave the lecture. They showed me the film and I didn't like it at all. Well, it was nominated for an It's half an hour long. And if you watch it, if you love this planet, you can go to my website, helencaldercock.com, and there it is. It's only half an hour long. It was made 40 years ago. It won an Oscar. The haircuts are different, but the data is totally pertinent now for what's happening in the world today. And what that speech does is break through people's psychic numbing and they cry because I talk about the medical effects of nuclear war and how people get vaporized and their eyeballs melt and they die of acute radiation illness, vomiting and bleeding to death and huge firestorms break out across the whole of America and, and inducing a huge cloud of black toxic radioactive smoke rising into the stratosphere, covering the earth with a cloud so thick it blocks out the sun for 10 years, causing what we call nuclear winter where everything and everyone will freeze to death in the dark now that's a very 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 important film and we've we've reintroduced it now on twitter tiktok instagram facebook so people will see it and start rising up and and demand that their governments get rid of nuclear weapons actually i don't think it's having as big an impact as i thought it would People need to watch it. But, you know, everyone's asleep. Even though things in the Ukraine are going from bad to worse, even though Putin has put his nuclear weapons on a high state of alert, even though Biden is run by neocons who want to destroy Russia, people are still asleep. And Murdoch's huge organisation running Fox News and the rest is keeping people numbed, psychically numbed, watching absolute garbage, where we need to educate people and get people moving so they save their lives and the lives of their children and the future of, of life on the planet. 
In all your years of activism, would it be safe to say you've made some enemies and governments all over the world? Uh, I don't think so. I, I was a pretty effective public speaker. I used to dress really well. I used to say, if you wear pearls, you can say anything because people say, oh, really? I think that some pro-nuclear people didn't like me, but they knew I was speaking the truth. Right. And when I debated them, I, I won every time because I'm a doctor, you know, and so I would establish a doctor-patient relationship with an audience of a 1,000 or one person. And, you know, I'm so used to telling people that, that their child might have leukemia or they may have a fatal disease and working with the patient through their grief, etc., helping them. So I don't think I made enemies. They didn't like what I was doing. But I think the Department of Defence, which I call the Department of Murder now because that's what they basically do, murder people, they didn't like me. And, in fact, we had I was I was on television all over the country during the 80s because there was a wonderful woman called Pat Kingsley who was a, an agent in Hollywood who had stars like Lily Tomlin, Sally Field, Tom Cruise and the like. And she got me on television stations all over the country, Donahue and all of them, and in Vogue, Lifetime. And so Mr. and Mrs. Joe Sixpack learnt about the medical dangers of nuclear war by watching their television. And by the end of the 80s, 80% of Americans were opposed to the nuclear arms race. In 1982, no, I can't remember the date, we got a million people marching in Central Park, the most, the most people that had ever attended a, a rally. And we were winning. I then got to meet Reagan in the White House for an hour and a quarter. I ended up holding his hand. His, his daughter, Patty, got, took me in there. He was, <laughs> he was an okay old man. I said he had impending Alzheimer's, which he did. He read to me from the Reader's Digest. He really knew nothing. I'd just <laughs> written my book, Missile Envy, and I was full of facts and figures. And as I corrected him, he'd get quite uptight and his cheeks would flush, so I'd hold his hand. So I sort of established a doctor-patient relationship with him. Um, I came out thinking I'd had no impact. But, in fact, Gorbachev had been listening to the doctors as well and they, they both understood that nuclear war would be the end of life on Earth. And they met in Reykjavik in 1988. And over a weekend, two mere mortals, men, almost agreed to abolish nuclear weapons, but they got hung up on Star Wars. Reagan thought it was great there'd be this big sort of canopy Oh, hanging over America and the, and the missiles would come in and bounce off the canopy. Gorbachev knew it wouldn't work, but it, it stymied the discussion and so we didn't abolish nuclear weapons. And here we are now where America's spending $1 trillion over the next 30 years to replace every single hydrogen bomb, missile, ship, plane, you name it. They've just produced a huge new aeroplane called the B-21 bomber to carry nuclear weapons. America is addicted to death, addicted to death at great expense. And more than half of the discretionary budget is spent on weapons and death, death. 
Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Dr. Helen Caldicott. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long, deep breaths. You know, <laughs> yes, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of the show, and we will be right back. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated, and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podcasting Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podcasticaudio.com slash easy. Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code DUBALL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. I wanna be as high as these billionaires in space. Sell out the sky like these billionaires in space. Hi, this is Dominic Canarella. I'm Eric McCoy. And I'm Max Meislish. We are Them Fantasies. Right now, you're listening to our brand new single, Billionaires. Billionaires is about how absurd it is that the mega rich are going to space as if there's nothing left for them here on Earth. Nowhere else to go but up, right? You can listen to Billionaires now on all streaming platforms and be sure to check out our brand new music video on our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere on social media at Them underscore Fantasies. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir 
heart strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hey, it's Presley Tennant, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find my brand new EP, 600 Miles, on all streaming platforms right now. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And together we are the Spy Hearts Podcast. Every Tuesday, we decode the best and the worst of spy cinema to decipher if they make the knock list. That's right. The knock list is the need-to-see official classics of the spy genre. The best of the best, so to speak. Nobody does it better. From Bourne to Bond and Powers to Palmer, you can bet we will cover it. So subscribe now and revel in the audio equivalent of a smooth martini. Just search for Spy Hards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on all major podcast apps. And let's just hope you find us before we find you. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 132 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with anti-nuclear arms activist and Nobel laureate, Dr. Helen Caldicott. I've read online that you are considered one of the most influential women of the last half century and a feminist icon. When I say that, how does it make you feel? (laughs) Well, I know I've done a lot of good work. I went on my tombstone, she tried, that's all. Uh, I've been I've been practicing global preventive medicine. That's what. But how does it make me feel? It doesn't make me feel good because we haven't won. I'm I'm very very distressed about the state of the earth at the moment, and what I'm very annoyed about is it's all men. You know, the men in the Pentagon they they talk about having a nuclear war with one big orgasmic wump. They talk about missile erectors, soft laydown, deep penetration. Is testosterone that's running the world? Fifty-two percent of the Earth's population are women. We have the nurturing hormones, oxytocin, progesterone, and estrogen, and men have testosterone. And it's it's not appropriate that testosterone is running the world, and it certainly is at the moment. There's a play, a Greek play called Lasistrata where the men kept killing and killing and killing, and the women finally said, okay, no more sex. And guess what? They stopped killing. (laughs) So men apparently need sex more than they need to kill each other. There's an African nation now run by a wonderful woman, and I can't remember which one it is, but a similar situation occurred very recently, and the men stopped fighting. 
We're in a very, very serious position, Derek. The Earth is in the intensive cabinet. We're all physicians to a dying planet. And I, you know, uh, and, and we haven't even mentioned global warming. You know, most politicians are scientifically and medically illiterate. That's mm. the problem. And science has progressed so far that even scientists find it hard to keep up with the literature. I've just been reading about the new fusion reactors. There's a wonderful article in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists describing these fusion reactors, which are absolutely impossible to run, use huge amounts of energy and will increase the risk of proliferation of nuclear weapons. But to keep up with them, you've got to have a bit of scientific background to understand what they're talking about. So I read you are pushing for schools to add nuclear danger to their curriculums. What has been the pushback that you've been experiencing? Uh, well, I haven't really added it, I don't think. Um, I, I don't think we're getting very far at all at the moment. I'm pretty depressed. Yeah. I've written and attributed to about 12 books, I think. The most recent was Sleepwalking to Armageddon. That came about because I heard Stephen Hawking, that wonderful physicist who had motor neuron disease, say uh, talk about the fact that they're putting nuclear weapons in the facilities on AI, artificial intelligence. And some four or five years ago, he said that this would cause inevitable nuclear war within 10 years. And I thought, oh, my God. So I organised a symposium at the New York Academy of Medicine brought in the best people and thinkers in the world, including Robert McNamara, who was JFK's Secretary of Defence, Secretary of State. Um, and out of that, the, the book was published called Sleepwalking to Armageddon. But, you know, hardly anyone's read it, and things just proceed as if everything's hunky-dory, and it's not. You know, we're going to talk about Ukraine in a second because there, there is a part of the thing, but there is something I wanted to tell you. When the war in Ukraine started and the whole world was like, oh, dear God in heaven, you know, this could end really badly in terms of nuclear war. I took and I did some more research from when I grew up in Great Britain. And that was I found the original courting of British Protect and Survive, which was the, the PSA about, you know, if you hear a nuclear, you know, a bomb, lie down. If you're in a don't go outside and all that. Yeah. And I found it and I actually played it on my show. Yeah, and I got and I got so much people responding like, "Where did you find that? What is it about?" And people have gone on to YouTube and watched the whole film now, and I find yeah. that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, the New York State Department put out another video recently about how to survive a nuclear attack. They said, "If you're outside, go inside. <laughs> Don't stand <laughs> near any windows. Yeah. Lie on the floor." I mean, it was absolutely laughable. Yeah, but, I saw you it. know, the Federal Emergency Management Agency during the 80s, they had a man called T.K. Jones, and he said, if there are enough shovels, we're all going to make it. So as the missiles come from Russia, and they only take 30 minutes, and the president has three minutes whether to, to press his button or not once the missiles are detected, T.K. Jones says you get out of your shovel, you dig a hole, six feet long, three feet wide, you put two doors on top and dirt on top. He said it's the dirt does it and you get in the hole. Someone said, who puts the dirt on top? And someone rather facetiously said, your mother-in-law. Anyway, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
(laughs) (laughs) It was ridiculous. You know, on the first day when the war occurs, all the odd numbered number plates leave and drive to a distant location in the country. The next day, the even numbered plates go, leave enough food for your cat and dog, don't take any drugs. And if the bombs start landing, you you park your car by the side of the road, get the shovel out, dig the hole, get in the hole, and it's the dirt that does it, said T.K. Jones. I mean, the whole thing is more than laughable. With the war in Ukraine, we seem to no longer be tiptoeing to the end of mankind by a nuclear destruction. We now seem to be doing the 100-meter dash. And I read your article in the Australia Independent about this. My question to you is, why do we feel so helpless but to be nothing but an audience member to our own annihilation. Well, I don't. I think what people don't understand is a: the politicians are scientifically and medically illiterate. B: they're corporate prostitutes. C: forty-five percent of your politicians in the Congress own shares in the military-industrial complex. D: they uh, just voted eight hundred and fifty-eight billion dollars for more weapons. They are corporate prostitutes, which really gives me the dry rot. I didn't feel helpless in, in America, and I was an alien, and I was a woman, and I led the movement like Joan of Arc. What we don't understand is that the politicians are our representatives, and we are their leaders. They're supposed to represent us. And in the absence of using our democracy, they get funded by the death-dealing industries. So when they come back to their districts, that we should go and see them and say, look, read this book and do this, and if you don't, we're going to make sure you don't get elected. Like in Georgia, there was a lot of door knocking and really great politicisation going on with Stacey Abrams, etc. We need to use our democracy and we're lazy. We sit on our bottoms and we look at television and we look at our computers, but we should be out there. We should be taking over the Congress. It belongs to us. We should be taking over Parliament House in in Canberra. It belongs to us. There's an urgency required, like a doctor trying to care for a patient in an intensive care unit. We stay up with them all night, all night. Even though we're so tired, we could just fall asleep on our feet. And that's the urgency that is required at the moment to save this beloved planet. You know, there are 400 billion galaxies in the universe, and we might be the only, only planet with the most extraordinary life process. Just look at a rose to understand what I'm talking about, or the magic of a colored bird. In all your years on this earth, if you had a chance to talk to your younger self, what advice would you give yourself? I'd say do the same thing again. I wouldn't alter my trajectory at all. All right. Before we close this out, I, there is one question uh, since I found out you're going to be on the show. And there is, I'd love to hear your take on this because I've asked a million different people and they all give me a million different answers. But I feel like you are one of the most qualified people to answer this question. The question is this. Uh, as someone who is a student of World War II history, do you think the United States was correct to drop the atomic bomb? Of course not. It was an experiment. The Japanese were ready to surrender already. They'd firebombed 60 cities and they're ready to surrender. So they they did it as an experiment. And, you know, I've been to Hiroshima and spoken there and the Hiroshima 
that people in Japan say, well, we can kind of understand the first bomb, but why the second? People escaped from Hiroshima and ran to Nagasaki to receive the second bomb. It was an experiment, and and everyone knows that. It was a horrific, horrific, horrific thing. The person who started the whole thing, what was his name, that wonderful scientist? Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, when he watched the first bomb explode, called Trinity after the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, he muttered to himself in the Bhagavad Gita, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's very true. I believe they're making a, a film about him uh, supposed to come out yeah. next year. I'm very interested in seeing that. So. Brilliant, brilliant man. Brilliant man. He knew. Einstein knew. So I have to ask, you know, what is next for you? Do you have more speaking engagements? Is what is what do you have going on for you right now? Well, it's a good question. No, I'm I'm not known well in Australia, and we're about to buy bloody twelve nuclear powered submarines. Just and we're becoming the fifty first state where of America. We're allowing B fifty twos to land in Darwin, the Northern Ter- Territory. We've got Pine Gap in the north of our country, which orchestrates the whole of nuclear war. It's a CIA base. It's imperative for the CIA and and the military to conduct a nuclear war. Uh, We're just becoming sycophants. I'm not asked to speak in America because, you know, people have forgotten all about that now. I used to be on, I knew Phil Donahue really well and I was on his show all the time and lots of people. In fact, I was the last person on Phil Donahue's show, the very last interview before I think it was NBC cancelled him. So, look, I would like to go and speak to Biden. I would like to penetrate Biden's psychic numbing and 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 get into his soul about what responsibility he has and persuade him and maybe go with him to see Putin and talk to both of those men as a physician and get them to understand deeply what their responsibilities are. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd like to do. And I would like to address a joint session of Congress. Nothing is impossible. That's all I always say. No, nothing's so it, impossible. I agree. Yeah. So I do like to ask one question. Uh, when you aren't writing and, and and in your activism, what do you do to relax? Do you paint? Do you, you, do you write I to garden. Read? I've got a, a wonderful, wonderful garden, and I love cooking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do paint, and I'm thinking of taking it up again. I play the clarinet, but I haven't been practicing lately, <laughs> and I, my embouchure has gone to hell. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got three gorgeous children, and I keep in touch with them every day. My daughter is a doctor who is who has sort of pioneered integrative medicine in Australia. Like, if you go and see the doctor, she's got a physiotherapist, a nutritionist, a psychologist. You know treats the whole patient, and she's a pioneer. She's wonderful. I talk to her every day. We talk about medicine. I've got seven grandchildren who I adore. So, look, I'm lucky, and I'll die soon. I'm at 84. I don't want to die, but I look at my skin, and it's getting more and more wrinkled, and I think, oh, my God, that reflects what's going on inside my body. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like I did when I was 21. I, I don't feel any different energetically i went to the gym this morning or or mentally you seem pretty sharp so yeah well i try and stay sharp (laughs) (laughs) as we get into the final phase of this interview what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online read your read your work 
It's a very, very good question, Derek. Go to my webpage, helencaldicott.com. Watch the film if you love this planet. Half an hour long. There are many, many videos on that webpage that I've done, including debate, debating with Patrick Buchanan, that awful right-wing guy. I remember um, that guy. Yeah, yeah, and trying to tell the Dalai Lama about the dangers of nuclear power. He is so sweet. And all sorts of lovely stuff there. All my books are there. All my articles, many, many articles are there if you want to find out about small modular reactors or, or the like. It's all there. Read it. And, look, contact me. It, it would be good if you wanted to ask me some questions. I agree. So I end my interviews with my favorite question. And based on our discussion today, I think you're going to have one of the greatest answers possible. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth? Go out and smell a rose. Look at your children. Look at the wonder of a new baby. Look out at the stars and know that we are probably the only life in this massive universe. What a privilege it was that you were even conceived out of the millions of sperm your father made that night. Your sperm reached your egg. What a privilege it was for you to ever have been conceived and lived. And what a responsibility you have to life on this planet. Beautiful. Dr. Caldicott, I could sit here and talk to you literally for hours because I think you're one of the most fascinating guests I've ever had on the show. This has been, again, a real honor for me. And thank you for being such a fierce warrior over the years. Well, I'm only a doctor. You know, I took the Hippocratic Oath. <laughs> <laughs> and just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 132. I want to thank Dr. Caldicott for being so incredibly generous with her time. I don't know if you could tell, but I was completely enthralled with her. And I mean, what a life she has led and what an example she has set for future generations. Also, on a personal note, we can stick another pin in the map as the good doctor was my first guest to call in from Australia. So that's another first for the Derek Duvall show. Tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We prefer the good ones, though, believe me. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek of All Show has a great little store on there, and we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, just this very morning while I was having my coffee, I added some more T-shirts on there. So please go on and check them out. There are some truly fun ones on there, believe me. Please go to our website, DerekDevallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, I want to thank Tee Public for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at The Dark Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of my loyal listeners, heed the words of Dr. Caldicott and heed them well. Contact your state representatives and voice your opposition to nuclear weapons. We are closer than ever to midnight on the doomsday clock. And to quote Mr. Spock, 
to seek out and accelerate our own extinction by our own hand is not logical. No star, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.